The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, September 25th, 2022. This is Rios. Secure channel activated. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 12th Digest of this second volume covering Monday, September 19th through Friday, September 23rd. Meanwhile, Monday, Part 8, taking a look at Dick Giordano's ongoing monthly column as managing editor of DC Comics, as featured this month in books cover dated September of 1983, which means these books hit the stands around June of 1983, and that probably means that Dick wrote this column sometime in the spring of 1983. You can find this Meanwhile column in Action Comics 547, All-Star Squadron 25, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld 5, Arak, Son of Thunder 25, Arion, Lord of Atlantis 11, Captain Carrot and His Amazing Zoo Crew 19, DC Comics Presents 61, Detective Comics 530, Flash 325, House of Mystery 320, Jonah Hex 76, Justice League of America 218, Legion of Superheroes 303, New Adventures of Superboy 45, Sergeant Rock 380, Superman 387, Warlord 73, Wonder Woman 307, and probably a bunch more. So what is this particular column about? It's written in the form of a letter from Dick Giordano to his mother. I believe her name is Gloria. Now there's an ongoing joke in some of the previous columns that Dick is always rushing to complete his column for a given month. It's always coming in at the last minute. And that's the joke here as we find uh, as we find out at the end. The reason it's a dear mom letter, if you will, is summed up in a postscript from DC production manager Bob Ruzakis, which reads that he went into Dick's office looking for this new meanwhile column for the month, but only found this letter and decided, you know what, this dear mom letter is better to print than having a blank page for the meanwhile column. So it's totally a pseudo letter uh, because it's really, you know, obviously it's a column and Dick is just using this as a way to, you know, maybe just write differently than a previous column. A way to talk about DC Comics, a way to do promotion without being so straightforward like previous columns, right? So it winds up being a Dear Mom letter, quote unquote, Um, about DC Comics for the second half of 1983 and ideas for 1984. It starts off talking about how at the time that Dick is writing this letter, there was a conductor strike against Metro-North, which is the railroad he takes into New York City each day from Connecticut. Uh, The column cover dated July 1983 from two Meanwhile segments ago even did a kind of like day in the life of Dick Giordano, and he talked about that particular commute back and forth. In this instance, he's having to stay at a hotel for most of the week uh, and spending 12 hours at D.C. while the strike was going on and getting a lot of work done. He mentions that for 1983, they had a list of things that they wanted to accomplish, 10 annuals, a slew of new titles, maxi and miniseries, graphic novels, some DC Marvel team-ups, some high-quality reprint series, several high-quality new format series. He mentions Ronin again, and all of this really just goes back to the very first column, the very first Meanwhile column, which was cover dated of February of 1983, and where all of this was pretty much already talked about. Frank Miller's Ronin has been getting several mentions through several columns. Ronin 1 shipped in April of 1983, so if he's asking readers if they saw Ronin in this column, 
I'm assuming that he's writing this column sometime around April or maybe in anticipation of that first issue or shortly after it was released. The second issue of Ronin was released with the same cover date as this column, September 83. Uh, So, you know, that's also very good timing. He mentions how there's been some delays in working on these projects for 1983 and gives two reasons. Number one, in response to to the demands of readers for ever better comics, creators have slowed down their normal rate of production in order to spend more time on each page, each drawing, and each cover. So I've heard that as a comment um, as to why current comics can't keep artists on projects longer than, say, five to six issues, because apparently what they're saying is readers demand more from art and artists these days, right? This is something that has been talked about, wow, for the last decade or so, probably, maybe even more. And I guess... I guess that's the case. I think some of it has to do, especially for those digital artists, there's more for them to play around with when they use some kind of art program and they're able to fine tune their work and go in and, you know, there's just, it. there's more, when you have more tools, that also means that you spend more time mucking around with your artwork, right? Because there are plenty of artists in the 80s who were doing full runs of comics and not missing issues, sometimes writing and drawing, and I'd argue that their output and their execution and their craft is, you know, dare I say better than things that I've seen recently, you know? So I see what he's saying, and um, certainly in the 80s, for those artists who were trying to break out of house styles, I can see that, yeah, Maybe there was more thought involved and they didn't want to just rush projects. And honestly, the monthly format is is not friendly towards artists. I mean, there are many artists that when you compare their work in a monthly comic to, say, an original graphic novel that they were able to work on for a longer period of time, most times that original graphic novel is 10 times better because they are able to dig in deeply and add more detail and pay attention to backgrounds, whatever, whatever the reasoning is. So if that's what he's talking about, you know, in order to spend more time on each page, sure, that makes sense. You know, make it a a much richer experience page to page. The second reason that he gives about all the delays is because in December of 1982, DC moved their offices to 666 Fifth Avenue. Um, which may have caused a lot of that delay. Giordano states that they had to move the offices for around 50 people. And I talked about that probably in the second Meanwhile column. So then he goes on to list some of the launches that happened in 1983. Titles like Omega Man, Ronin, Amethyst Princess of Gemworld, Batman and the Outsiders, the Green Arrow miniseries. This was, all of these titles were either talked about before in a column or I mentioned them as possibilities for specific titles or specific formats that he was teasing. And that's been a lot of fun with this uh, Meanwhile column that even if Dick doesn't mention a title, if he mentions something about, you know, here uh, there's going to be a four-issue miniseries featuring a Justice League of America member, then, you know, I can look back in hindsight and check notes and do research and go, yeah, that was probably the Green Arrow miniseries. So that's what I liked about, that's what I like about this column, digging in and mining some DC history. Now, the Green Arrow miniseries had already wrapped up by the time readers were reading this column, and for some of those other titles, like Omega Men and Amethyst and Batman and the Outsiders, you can go back to the top of the segment when I listed where this column actually is, And you can hear what number some of them are up to by this point. So then Dick details what titles are ready to be released in 1983, or at least at the time of his writing. Vigilante, which would be released in August of 1983. Star Raiders, DC's first graphic novel, also 
shipped in August of 1983. Thriller, Superman 3 movie adaptation, New Talent Showcase, Star Trek. He talked about all of those titles in previous Meanwhile segments. At the time of this writing, he mentions the JLA Avengers team-up. Whoops, you know, we know how that turns out. Uh, He does mention Warlords, DC's second graphic novel, which would be by Steve Steve Skeets and David Wenzel. That would ship in December of 1983, and then talks about there are obviously more annuals that are going to be released. And then a list of titles that will round out 1983, the second half or the later half. New Teen Titans and X-Men, the second volume. Oops, that also didn't come out. The Redeemer by Joe Kubert. Uh, Atari Force, Jose Garcia Lopez's first regular assignment. So the first issue of that does ship in October of 1983. Nathaniel Dusk, which would ship in November of 1983 and Infinity Inc., which would squeeze in right at the end of December of 1983. So again, you're reading this column in June of 1983, and these are all the things you have to look forward to by the end of the year. Now, The Redeemer by Joe Kubert, that's the only one, well, outside of the Marvel team-ups, that never surfaced. So The Redeemer was going to be originally a 12-issue series by Joe Kubert, uh, Dick Giordano says the first in his first in years. And at the time when you read later interviews, Hubert was very honest and said, you know, it was delayed. He wanted to push it back to six issues instead of 12. And eventually this story would be published in Joe Kubert presents um, a, I think it was a six issue anthology series from 2012 and 2013 which was all published after Joe Kubert's death, so in, uh, so in celebration for Joe Kubert. And The Redeemer is a story of a man who is reborn time and time again and finds himself a savior of sorts who is destined to be tempted by the forces of evil. So this is great. This is one of those untold, unpublished works that pops up in the meanwhile columns every now and then, but that actually you can read many, many, many decades later. So it was kind of fun seeing that and then doing the research and going, oh, wow, that actually was released. So you can go read that story in Joe Kubert Presents. He mentions that DC's newsprint line will probably shift to Mando paper at some point. I have no idea when that shift actually happened. I would have to, like, look at my collection, you know. Did it happen line-wide for all of the newsstand titles? Did it happen immediately or over the course of a few months? Um, Some people speculate that the Mando shift happened when DC announced their new format line, but that was well after the crisis. So I don't know if... um, I don't know. I don't know if it ha- if it did happen in 83, 84, or if it did take all that time. I, I just don't know. And then we talk about comics that, that will be released from DC in 1984, or at least the things that Dick Giordano would like to see. He would like to see the launch of four to six new titles. One of them may be Blue Devil. Uh, the start of two to four new maxi-series... And we do get things like Superpowers and Gem, Son of Saturn in 1984. He wants to release four to eight graphic novels. And that does not happen. That is incredibly ambitious. It just doesn't happen in 1984. It probably happens well after 1984. And I think some of it might have to do with, you know, as they get closer to their 50th anniversary and they start to cement their plans for Crisis, and for restarting a lot of titles, maybe some of this other stuff just gets pushed away because they need to put all their power and energy into whatever those plans are. So, four to eight graphic novels. Wow. He then writes, We will begin a revitalization program for our older regular titles. Don't really know what he means. He doesn't go into detail. Does it mean new creative teams, new starting points, new number ones? 
Again, this is pre-crisis. So we're not talking burn on Superman or Perez on, on Wonder Woman. That's all years away. Maybe it has to do with like the soft cover, hardcover program for Legion of Superheroes, New Teen Titans, and eventually the Outsiders as they switch to a volume two Baxter series. Or maybe he's hinting at Alan Moore on Swamp Thing, uh, Len Wein and Dave Gibbons on Green Lantern, or the Detroit era of Justice League of America, which were, all three of those at least, um, creative shifts and even focus shifts for all of those titles. Dick would like to add some humor titles, primarily for younger readers. Again, I'm thinking Blue Devil, maybe Gem, but that's not really humor. Uh, he wants to create a publication especially for female audiences, but he but then he says, we don't mean icky romance comics, <sighs> which I was like, okay, Tom King's Love Everlasting disagrees with you, Dick. Um, he wants to sprinkle in some miniseries for 1984, some featuring current characters, some featuring brand new concepts and characters. In 1984, we would get Spanner's Galaxy, if you remember that. We would get America versus the JSA, Conquerors of the Barren Earth. And then Dick says, create a format to utilize the characters recently acquired from Charlton Comics Group. And I talked about that in the last Meanwhile segment. He talks about how some of these ideas for 1984 are coming from people not now part of DC's staff. So that means bringing in new people into DC. And then he also mentions wanting to do a major restructuring of in-house staff to better utilize our creative strengths and improve administrative efficiency. Oh boy. Again, DC's big 50th anniversary is coming. He does give an example for Ernie Cologne saying that Ernie is no longer staff editor and is, and is returning to freelancing, which means he'll still edit but he can do that from home. Sounds like, you know, um, sounds like everything going on after the pandemic, right? Work from home. Um, but also, but then says this will also allow Ernie to work on Amethyst, which is being released at the time of readers reading this column. And also Ernie Cologne will be working on a graphic novel that he is writing and drawing. That would be the graphic novel, the third DC graphic novel entitled Medusa Chain. And that was released in July of 1984. I have never read that, so I probably should read that someday. Dick mentions that Ernie's staff desk at DC will be taken over by Alan Gold, an experienced editor but not from comics, at least not originally, recommended to Dick Giordano by Marv Wolfman. And of course, Alan Gold would go on to become an editor for many successful titles. So then uh, he wraps up. He talks about, um, he's talking with Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick for a Firestorm graphic novel. That's an interesting bit of history for Firestorm. It never surfaces. Um, parts of it become an annual, I think. It was supposed to be entitled Corona. We'll, we will hear more about that. He mentions that Jeanette Kahn has accepted a new concept from Greg Potter. I've already mentioned that title. That's definitely Gem, Son of Saturn, that will be drawn by Gene Colan. Two other miniseries tentatively approved, one by Robert Lauren Fleming. So Thriller is already going on, and I'm thinking, is that Ambush Bug? But that wouldn't be released until 1985, and Fleming was just a scripter. I thought that was more Keith Giffen. Then I thought, wow, could it be Underworld, but then... You know, that series, also by Ernie Cologne, wouldn't be released until 1987. Not to mention that Fleming would leave Thriller midway through because of some difficulties. So maybe this miniseries never comes out, or it is delayed and becomes one of the miniseries later in 1980s. And then also one by Marv Wolfman. Now, Tales of the New Teen Titans, that had already been released in 1982. So is Dick just referencing the crisis? Is he referencing history of the DC Universe, right? You know, I don't think in the timeline those two titles were separate just yet because history of the DC Universe was supposed to be the last two issues of whatever they were going to call crisis. So 
Um, maybe it was something Titans related that just never came out. I don't know. So we'll have to see if he follows up on that. And that's where Dick's portion of the column wraps up. And then, as I mentioned, you get the postscript with Bob Rosakis. And that closes out this meanwhile for uh, this particular segment. However, we're not done. There's a special extra meanwhile this month, which you can only find in uh, June of 1983 in DC Sampler number one. This was a giveaway that DC had produced for their readers and for new readers as a way to talk about all of the titles in their lineup. And they would give it away at conventions. It was totally free. It consists of 15 double-page spreads, mostly by the creators of their respective titles. And the artwork is all new, specifically for the sampler itself. There were three of these samplers produced. You can find them pretty easily at conventions, you know. I think I have a few copies of each. In this first issue, it's this column, this meanwhile column, is just Dick talking about what the sampler is. And he does mention that a couple of the titles weren't included in this first sample, such as Camelot 3000, Green Lantern, JLA, Warlord, either because the creative teams were unavailable or they were in the process of changing direction, which I already talked about with uh, Green Lantern and JLA. He then asks readers to write in if they want more. As I mentioned, there would be two more samplers. I would love more. I think DC should do that even to this day. I mean, I guess in some way, some ways that's what previews is all about. But to have this original artwork and to have writers write about their particular titles in their own particular way, it's just beautiful to watch. So if you've never seen the DC sampler, you really should go check it out. I'm sure you can find it online or you can find many blogs talking about it and posting a lot of their a lot of the images. So as I mentioned, there were three of them. I don't know. I don't remember what the dates were for issues two and three, but very enjoyable, beautiful to look at. And uh, if you're a DC, an 80s DC person and you don't have the samplers, you really should. So kind of cool. We did get two meanwhile columns, even if one is tucked away in kind of like, you know, an obscure little bit of DC um, publishing. All right, there you go. That's it for this segment. We will see you next month. Have I ever explained what that bumper is? I think I have. It's the theme song for Trivial Pursuit, one of the game's versions, like the, you know, like a Sega game or computer game or console game, or maybe even like a PC version. So, yeah, that's just... The Trivial Pursuit uh, theme. And I use that because this segment is Trivia Tuesday. And we're going to go back. We're going to throw back once again to 1982, September of 1982. This is a follow-up to the Digest for August 21st, where I talked about how I am heading closer and closer to my own personal 40th anniversary of collecting comics, which started in October of 1982. Now, I've been reading comics before, you know, prior to that, but those were mostly Richie Rich or they were hand-me-down comics from my uncle. But the first month of comics where I, you know, when I look at my collection and I realize, no, these are the ones that I walked into a store and I picked up myself... Um, fairly certain it all began in October of 1982. So in the digest for August 21st, I did some trivia based on comics that were released in August of 1982. And we're going to follow it up here with six questions from comics that were released in September of 1982. So the six questions in the format of Trivial Pursuit, but really in the format of the trivia game that I created over the many, many years. Uh, Six questions. We start off with some history, I guess you could say, from DC Comics Presents issue number 52, 
of September of 1982. It was the first appearance of Ambush Bug. So Ambush Bug is celebrating 40 years in a story by Paul Kupperberg, Keith Giffen, Sal Trapani, and company. So DC Comics Presents is a Superman team-up title, and although it featured the first appearance of Ambush Bug, he was not the team-up for Superman, and he did not headline the cover, right, where it would say Superman and somebody. Who was the supergroup that Superman teamed up with in DC Comics Presents issue 52 that also featured Ambush Bug? Question number two, geography. September of 1982 saw the release of the first issue of a three-issue Masters of the Universe miniseries from DC Comics. In this particular story, Prince Adam's mother, Marlena, is shown to be not from Eternia, but from what other planet? Question number three, which is powers and paraphernalia, etc. Uncanny X-Men, issue 164, is the first appearance of Carol Danvers as the character known as Binary. She became Binary after she was subjected to evolutionary modification, which released the full potential of the mix of hybrid human and Cree genes found inside her body. Which alien race did those experiments? Next up, we have events. Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, which came out in September of 1982, featured the first appearance of the New Mutants. So we have the 40th anniversary of the New Mutants. Chris Claremont, Bob McLeod, and company. Other than Professor X... Who are the five new mutants that grace the cover of that graphic novel? Fifth question, characters and creators. Camelot 3000 number one is celebrating 40 years in September of 1982. It is well known for the Brian Bolin artwork. Brian Bolin is also one of the co-creators. Who is the other co-creator that acts as the writer? And finally, question number six, Hypertime, which is kind of like a potpourri. The third issue of this three-issue black-and-white independent series from Capital Comics featured a flexible disc stapled inside, which you could play along on a record player for a read-along experience. Created by Mike Barron and Steve Rude, name this title. All right, how did you do? Here we are. Here are the answers. The first question, DC Comics Presents, featuring the first appearance of Ambush Bug, was a team-up with Superman and the Doom Patrol. Second question, Geography. Masters of the Universe, the miniseries uh, from DC Comics, showed that Prince Adam's mother, Marlena, was from the planet Earth, which I didn't know. Third question, Powers, Uncanny X-Men 164, Carol Danvers was turned into binary after experiencing experiments um, that were run by the Brood. For events, the five new mutants that were on the cover, along with Professor Xavier, of Marvel graphic novel number four, the mutants are Cannonball, Karma, Sunspot, Psyche, and Wolfsbane. I would also accept Mirage for Psyche, but at the time of the uh, beginning of um, the New Mutant, she was known as Psyche. Uh, fifth question, characters and creators. Camelot 3000, the co-creators are Brian Bolin with writer Mike W. Barr. And the final question, which title from Capital Comics featured in issue number three, a flexible, playable uh, disc for a read-along experience, the clue was by the creative team, Mike Barron and Steve Rude, so the title would be Nexus. How did you do? How did you do for this 40th anniversary of Trivia Questions for September of 1982? Spider-Ham, Spider-Ham, friendly neighborhood Spider-Ham. Spins a web, that's the gig, kind of weird cast, he's a pig, look out, here comes the Spider-Ham. New Comics Wednesday, recommendations for Wednesday, September 21st. 
starting with Oni Press Action Journalism Number 1 for $3.99. This is by Eric Skillman, Miklos Felvidiki, Marianne Guzmeo on colors. As a sinister alien armada looms over the earth, new Arcadia's favorite intrepid reporter, Kate Kelly, has just two hours to infiltrate the fleet, uncover their most scandalous secrets, land the interview of the century, and avert interstellar war, and not necessarily in that order. From 2000 AD Rebellion, Best of 2000 AD Trade Paperback, the first of six volumes for $22.99, presenting the greatest stories for a new generation of readers. In each edition, you will find a new Judge Dread adventure, fresh essays by prominent pop culture writers, a graphic novel-length feature presentation by Global Legends, and a vintage Dread case. So in this volume one, you get Judge Dread battling Muty Block Anarchy, Halo Jones escapes in Alan Moore's first story, Humanity is on the Brink in the Space Murder Mystery from Dan Abnett and I.N.G. Colbert, and Judge Anderson takes center stage in the search for Shambhala. From Dark Horse, take a look at Daisy Hardcover for $24.99, collecting the five-issue series by Colin Lorimer, Joanna Leventi on colors, and Jim Campbell on letters. A desperate mother's search for her missing son, leads to the mysterious family of Daisy Phillips. Like many teens, Daisy has a hard time fitting in, but for atypical reasons, because she stands over eight feet tall and believes herself descended from cannibalistic giants spawned from the outcasts of heaven. This frail, disfigured youth may hold the key to unlock the language of creation, the divine DNA of God, and expose the monstrous lie hidden within creation itself. A modern horror graphic novel, spinning from the apocalyptic book of Enoch, excluded from biblical canon for disclosing the war of angels and man's introduction to violence, corruption, and evil. From DC Comics, we have the second Titans United miniseries, entitled Blood Pact, one of six, for $3.99, by Kevin Scott and Lucas Mayer and Company. The TV Titans are back, united against a common foe. All seems lost when Tim Drake wakes, out of uniform and seemingly out of time. Surely he was just fighting alongside Nightwing, Superboy, Starfire, Beast Boy, and Donna Troy. But where is Raven, and what links her to the Fearsome Five? A blood sacrifice is coming that will change the world forever. So I have to imagine this is obviously picking up on uh, the next Titan season, season number four, which is uh, going to show the um, big bad of Brother Blood. So I have to imagine that's why it's entitled Blood Pact. And then finally from Marvel Comics, as the introduction music uh, clued in, we have the second volume of Peter Porker Spectacular Spider-Ham, $34.99. The Infinity Wart causes cosmic chaos, but can Peter Porker handle the power of Captain Zooniverse? And who is Spider-Ham 2099? Plus, Civil War rocks Spider-Ham in a piggy paradise filled with porcine personas from Iron Ham to Wolverham, and when J. Jonah Jackal and Mary Crane are kidnapped, Spider-Ham battles Dr. Octopussycat and the Swinester Six. I love me some f funny animal books, and some of those names are just ridiculous. And then they also list here uh, Black Catfish, Croctor Strange, The Pun Fisher, Dr. Doom, uh, Raven the Hunter, The Green Gobbler, and more, as well as Howard uh, Howard the Duck, and Forbish Man. So these are titles from What the Ultimate Spider, uh, Ultimate Civil War Spider-Ham, the Spider-Ham 20th, 25th Anniversary Special, and then a whole bunch of stories from Marvel Tales 201 through 212, 214 through 219. These are probably like a lot of the cartoons for Spider-Ham and other What the titles. 
there you go, just some quick recommendations for the week of September 21st. Three digests ago, I talked about how Will Eisner's A Contract with God is uh, potentially going to become a Broadway musical. Two digests ago, I talked about how the original Rocky Horror Show musical is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary next year, and one of the celebrations means that that musical is going to return to comics, and now... Here for another theater and comic segment, I am taking a look at Phantom of the Opera, the graphic novel from Titan Comics. So the novel by Gaston Leroux, which was turned into, you know, movies and TV shows and miniseries, uh, became a Broadway musical. And that Broadway musical was by Andrew Lloyd Webber, Charles Hart, and Richard Stilgo. It is celebrating its 35th anniversary next year. Um, That musical is the basis for this adaptation for Phantom of the Opera, the graphic novel. It is illustrated by Jose Maria Barroy and adapted by Kevin Scott. Kevin Scott, I just mentioned Scott's name when I talked about Titans United Blood Pact in the new, uh, new Wednesday comic segment. So this was released in January of 2022, and it is absolutely based on the stage musical, meaning the story follows the the musical story and (laughs) includes the lyrics for the songs. So I talked a little bit about this last time when I was talking about Rocky Horror Show. It's an interesting pacing situation as you read an adaptation of a mu- of a musical that is stopping to take time to lay out the lyrics and sometimes those lyrics are all on one page sometimes they are spread uh, across multiple pages but it's an odd feeling that you have to kind of like slow down if you're just reading the lyrics, if you're not trying to sing them, if you're not trying to put them in the proper timing, it reads just like a normal comic book. And basically, it feels like you're reading poetry, right? Or you're reading like the rhymes of Jack Kirby's Demon. But if you're trying to give it its proper value, or if you play the soundtrack along with it, sometimes you're just stuck on one page until that song is done. So... This was a very peculiar reading experience. I've had this review copy for a while, and um, it took me a while to get to it. And then when I did get to it, I was like, how do I talk about this? Because, you know, it's, I'm very familiar with the musical. You know, I grew up listening to musicals in the 80s, and when there was this explosion that happened, um, where suddenly we were getting these mega musicals, Things like Les Mis, things like Miss Saigon, things like Phantom of the Opera. These musicals that, you know, cost a lot of money, were um, incredibly high profile, which brought a lot of tourists to, to Broadway and to New York. And they were huge in scope. I mean, just, just huge, you know. So I grew up with a musical listening to it. I know it so well. Um, I only saw it for the first time when I was in college in the early 90s. I saw a touring production company of the Broadway show, and it was fun. It was was totally just cheesy, great fun, but there were a lot of great sequences and a lot of great special effects, if you want to say, for the time. And the music is, the music is what it is, right? You know, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, if you know the history of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, I, I... Never saw the musical on Broadway. Apparently, the Broadway show is closing in February of 2023 after 35 years, which is kind of shocking, the longest-running musical. Um, But I am very familiar with it. So as I'm reading this graphic novel, since it's based 
on the musical, just like the movie that features Gerard Butler as the Phantom of the Opera is also based on the musical, um, this one sticks really close. I mean, there are some things that they skip. There are some songs. Do they shorten some of the lyrics? I think so. They, they definitely shorten some of the scenes. And it reads like a movie adaptation into comics as well, where you just get a sense that it's it's a little clipped. It's a little shorthanded. Um, you're not really getting the full experience. It's almost like you're getting the Cliff Notes version. But um, this one sticks pretty close to the musical. And I did play the soundtrack for the first act. But then for the second act, I just read it because it was just taking so long to read. Um, I kind of wish they would have a f- um, some chapter breaks here and there. Or definitely an act break. So at the end of Act 1, where the chandelier comes crashing down, there should have been a page or two to let us know that, you know, this is, quote-unquote, the intermission. Because they're calling an adaptation of the adaptation of the musical, so, you know, would it be so bad to bring in some of those musical tropes, like an intermission, you know? Um, I don't know how this would read with you know, by somebody who, who is not familiar with the musical, do you, again, do you read it just straight through? Do you try to incorporate the musical? I used the original London soundtrack because that's the purest version. Um, the visuals are pretty much there. I mean, they take some liberties here and there, but it, it certainly felt like what I remember from watching the musical it absolutely is a collector's item. So if you know somebody who's a Phantom of the Opera fan, they should probably, you should probably get this because I think they would enjoy it to some degree. Um, and maybe they would just love it for the, the kitschy factor of it. And in the back, they have some galleries, some character designs. They show how they put the script to the comic They also talk about the origins of the musical, which is kind of good because then it gives you a backdrop to what the heck this whole thing is about. Um, It's a it's a unique reading experience. I can't say it's perfect. It's just like I talked about with Rocky Horror, the Caliber Press comics. It's it's just an interesting read because I guess I mean, the, the artwork is comic book artwork. Um, but you get the sense that you want these characters to move and you want, even though they do kind of a good job, like for instance, the, the, when the, when you really first meet the Phantom with Christine and they are traveling in a gondola through his lair and through the water. I mean, that was such a powerful image in, in the, um, theater production at the time you get a sense of movement because of where the lyrics are laid out, like the lettering kind of helps that. But it's still, in essence, a static page. And the sequentials feel more like little moments in time rather than going from one panel to the next. Not all the time, but that kind of slow pace, it was a little hard to to adjust to. So, yeah, these are... These are strange. I have to find more. I have to see if there are some more um, musical adaptations into comics to see if that that pacing, you know, still kind of works. It's almost like reading Shakespeare when it's adapted or a literary novel when it's adapted. You just know that it's it's kind of abbreviated in one way or another. Um, I did talk about once. Boom Studios put out do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but they made a made a choice that they were going to include every single word in that novel, and it wound up being I don't know how many issues long, um, but I wondered how that read. You know, I read only the first issue. You know, what was the pacing like? Because you're reading everything, so you could kind of expand it out, right? But this is different. Because some scenes are shorter than others, some songs are shorter than others, but um, the coloring I uh, was one was another thing that I took notice of because there's very little in the in terms of like shading and depth. It comes across a little flat at times. I wish there was a little 
Um, you know, characters in the foreground blend into the, into the backdrop because the coloring is all the same. It doesn't have different textures. It doesn't have different value. Um, but I am glad I read it because I was certainly curious. And there, there have been other phantom graphic novels, actually, uh, even just recently. So uh, this was one that I wanted to, to check out. And it put me on a, a rabbit hole because I was looking at various productions of the musical and anniversary productions and trying to see like were there clips of the original production the movie you know um there is a sequel that andrew lloyd weber wrote that um is i don't think very good um and i also found out that there's an audiobook of the original gaston Leroux novel by christopher lee so there was a time many many years ago where I was really into reading the original source material for a lot of musicals. So I was trying to read, like, the original Phantom of the Opera. I did read the original Les Mis. Um, And anything else that had any kind of basis, I wanted to read it, you know. And then there for a while I wanted to read all the horror books, like Dracula and um, The Invisible Man and Frankenstein because I like going back to the source material. I've never gone back to Phantom of the Opera, and I really should. I've certainly seen many adaptations. Um, there was a very interesting miniseries, I think, that was on TV many, 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 many years ago. So, yeah, um, Phantom of the Opera, Titan Comics. This is an interesting read. Again, if you have somebody that's interested in Phantom of the Opera the musical, they would like this. If you're curious, go check it out. You can pick this up for $29.99 from the Titan website. If anybody has read this, let me know. I would love to hear your opinion on this. So, And like I said, hopefully I'll find some more musical-to-comic adaptations, and I will continue with this theater and comics segment. Wrap it up. I'll take it. Wrap it up. I'll take it. I'm definitely seeing a pattern that more and more of these Friday segments are becoming just sort of personal wrap-ups of the week or just catch-ups of things that are going on. So this is uh, Friday, September 23rd. This is my two-week anniversary of having COVID. And um, it's been a little bit of an odd journey. I don't know if anybody else felt this way, but when I found out that I got COVID, when I got that test and it was positive... Um, there was a a time where I just felt icky, right? Like, I don't mean physically, I mean mentally. Like, I just felt gross. I was like, ugh, now I got it, you know? And, um, the, the, the stigma that's attached to it and just, it just, I just felt bleh. So two weeks in, um, you know, after the first week, there was definitely a general funk and some brain fog and low energy. And then after that first week, uh, that I talked about in last Digest, there was, you know, the weekend and, a, and the beginning of this week, I felt pretty good. I went on a couple walks, which was awesome. And then again, I had like another bad day. It wasn't like I was in bed. I just had a dip in energy and a dip in um, just what I wanted to focus on, I guess you could say. But here at the end, um, I feel like everything's been cleaned out. You know, I feel okay, except for this like lingering nasal congestion and um you know my my voice gets tired quick quickly um nothing is running nothing is draining but i just i i can tell i've been sick and it's kind of lingering um that odd taste you know i didn't lose my smell and i didn't lose my sense of taste but whenever i get sick i always feel you can you know you you know how you, you you just taste sickness in your mouth um that's gone away, but, um, uh, you know, my energy is pretty much there. It's just this sort of lingering, I don't know, I don't know if it's like inflammation in my, in my nasal cavities or my sinuses or whatever. So no doubt this was absolutely a mild case, you know, because I'm, I am vaccinated. Um, but it's scary to think because I, I have two not-so-immediate family members who died. Uh, and both of them from the same family and both of them because they were not vaccinated and they, they, they died, they died from COVID and they died 
in not very nice ways, you know, um, one was worse than the other. And then I have several immediate family members who have had COVID, some of them twice, most of them vaccinated, some of them not. Um, my mother still talks about having some ear clogging issues. Yeah, all to, I, I, all to say I'm not a fan, you know, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have gotten it. I don't want anybody to get it, but, um, it's, you know, it is what it is. And uh, we'll see how it goes on from here um, to see if I recover more, if I get, if I lose this kind of heady sense, whatever it's going on in my nasal cavities. cavities. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm someone who has had asthma. And I've had, I've had asthma since I was a kid. And only in the past year, last year, actually, the spring of last year, I stopped taking asthma, asthma medicine because it was, it was also, you know, increasing my blood pressure. So, um, I cold turkey that baby. I wasn't, I was kind of taking the medicine wrong. You know, when you have a rescue inhaler, you should just use it to rescue your breathing not just when you wake up and you have a little bit of wheezing and you're like, oh, let me just take my inhaler, right? That's just not the way you should take it. So decades of taking medicines on and off in different degrees, you know, has led to high blood pressure. So I did not want to jump back onto that medicine while I had COVID and I did not, which is great. Um, but I was worried about some of my, some of my breathing, some of my respiratory stuff, you know, fortunately nothing really bad happened there. Um, just a weird two weeks. I mean, I'm not at school, right? I hadn't gone back to school this semester. So I would have lost two weeks of work, of work because I did not, I took another test at the beginning of this week and was still negative or excuse, excuse me, still positive. And then I was finally negative just, a, you know, like a day or two ago. So I would have missed two weeks of work. Um, you know, my school was never set up to do any kind of like remote teaching. It was one thing when we were all on Zoom, but for me to be on Zoom and the students to be at class, it just, you know, the school just is not prepared to do any of that. So it would have been a, a an, an interesting two weeks. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, things are, I'm done with that, hopefully, <laughs> Now I have to figure out when I can actually get that next booster shot. I think I have to wait a number of months. So I have to get a hold of my doctor and find that out. But I do definitely want to still, you know, keep up with all that stuff. Because, um, you know, I don't want to get this again. Um, still wearing my masks, you know, still trying to avoid contact with people. I mean, there are some family functions coming up, but, you know, I'm trying to be safe. So, okay. I think that's it for this week for this digest. You know what to do. Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com or go to the Daily Rios website or go to the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, a reminder, if you want to do a book club episode with me, just send me an email and send me some choices and we'll work it out. Please send me some promos of some of new podcasts, of old podcasts, of your Kickstarters, of your comics, whatever. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 581, for Sunday, September 25th, 2022. Talk to you soon. And we have to do it quick before the last viewer switches channels. Hey, I'm talking to you. No, don't do it.